what do you think you have to give up to become a Christian? Or how do you become a Christian? What do you think about, about that? I don't feel like I'm at loss of anything okay. for being a Christian. I feel like, and if anything, it's given me more perspective on different things. And, you know, how it's kind of like what I choose to live my life by. So the reason I want to be a biologist because I want to help people, which kind of goes back to like being a good person, like yeah. that sort of thing. I don't really think you have to, to give up all that much. It's more about what you're willing to do for other people. I, I think is more about being a Christian than having to give up. I know you see all these things that are like, oh, he's a Christian. He doesn't, you know, he, he doesn't believe in this. They, yeah. they think that. I, and I just, I really disagree with that stuff. I don't really think you need to give up anything to be a Christian. I think it's more about what you put out and do for yeah. others. Great. I don't think you should have to give anything up. I mean, it sounds like for the most part, especially around Madison, um, a lot of churches are very opening, open to like whatever belief you may be. Sure. I mean, I grew up in a very conservative part of the state, okay. so um, it's, it's very different atmosphere here, which is really cool actually. <laughs> uh, yeah, it's a big change. Um, but if anything, I've seen it positively impact my peers, my mentors, the people around me, and how it can bring a sense of community and you gain, I mean, a connection through faith, which is something that you can't get from anywhere else. How are you? Better than me. I am uh, feeling a little sick, so if you could pray for me, my voice, my body, the rest of the weekend, I would, I would seriously appreciate it. And uh, if we just pray about 20 minutes in, then you know the spirit has spoken and my body is ready to just leave and go home. <clears throat> so if that happens, don't be alarmed. Just find the worship people. We'll bring them back on stage and we'll, the spirit will have said enough through, through me. Well, my name's RD and I'm one of the pastors uh, on staff here. And we'll be finishing our uh, series this weekend, uh, Questions of Christianity. And we only picked five. We could have picked so many, um, but we're going to get back in Luke uh, next week and keep walking through that. And so our last question kind of covers... A lot of things. It's only a little small question. What do I have to give up to be a Christian? And it's just such a big question. I thought maybe we'd start with some, uh, some smaller questions and then kind of work ourselves up to the big deep end of the pool. So question number one, and if you know that I'm from, raised uh, in South Alabama and uh, grew up in Tennessee and then my wife and I are from Texas, this one may be a little funnier. Question number one, what do you have to give up to live in Wisconsin? Well, there's warmth, <laughs> there's happiness, <laughs> there's sun, yep, there we go. And uh, my wife and I went with our parents to the beach uh, a few weeks ago, and the second we get off the plane, which down south you can get off the plane outside, we get off the plane going down the, the, um, to the gate, which is all outside, the first thing our girl, we're holding them, the first thing our girls do is like this. They're like, what? I'm like, girls, that object in the sky is the sun. Like. <laughs> People do live in places where they see it, I know. And they're just, the whole week, they're like, take us inside. So we had these hats. They looked like they were winter-dressed all week at the beach. But, you know, you, you do give up a lot to live in Wisconsin, right? It's, it's not California, right? It's not Florida. And for many of you, you love it. And Emily and I have actually come to love it. Uh, but you sacrifice in some ways to live here. Yeah, and yet you gain a lot from that, don't you? Well, question number two, kind of going up a little level. What do you give up to get married? Some of you are like, a lot more, a lot more than I thought. <laughs> Still giving it up, right? A lot. Um, freedom, right? Uh, a lot of finances. Um, I lived alone for a long time, so that was a big adjustment. You know, you give up maybe being understood, especially, you know, just like 
when my wife and I early on were dating, but this has continued on in our marriage, and you may be able to relate to this, uh, whether you're married or, or not. We were uh, going out on a date, and Emily had planned me a Chuck Norris date night. And this is when I knew she was the one. This is like <laughs> a Chuck Norris date night. I love Chuck Norris, right? Walker, Texas Ranger. It's a terrible, awesome show. And so she got me a shirt, which I was wearing earlier today. And I still have it, still wear it. And uh, we we're going to Chuck Norris's house, and we we're going to Chuck Norris's favorite restaurant, which we didn't know. This date was in 2011, 10, whatever, something like that. And uh, we didn't know that the restaurant that he loved, I think, quit being good about 1999, right? <laughs> Everything on the menu was like best Chinese in Dallas, 1999, right? We're the only ones there. So it was one of those kind of like crazy, we went by his house and kind of creeped on the gates and stuff. But, he didn't come out and see us, so we watched one of his movies and all this good stuff. And before we went on the date, um, we were talking in my apartment for just a couple hours. Great talk, you know, feeling, sharing, all the stuff, right, the back and forth. And then I'm like, okay, that's good. It's time to go, you know, start the day. It's going to be awesome. And we're driving our car from Dallas, uh, my apartment, to like North Dallas in uh, Richardson, Plano area to get to the restaurant. And I'm, you know, driving, I'm looking at, you know, just the billboards and all this stuff passing by. And Emily turns to me and she's like, what are you thinking about? I was like, well, there's a, there's a street sign and that's, that looks great. And there's a bill, I, nothing, I, what? And she's like, she's like, you're not thinking about anything? I'm like, I, I'm an idiot. I don't really think about, I'm literally thinking about the street we passed, the billboard. I, that's when I'm actually thinking about it. And she's like. I can't believe you're lying to me. I'm like, I, we just talked for two hours. Like, we, what else is there to talk about? And, the, you know, and, like, and so this continued in terms of, like, Emily would talk about, like, her brain being like the uh, desktop of a, like a computer, and all the, the boxes are open, and you shut one, but there are, like, 20 more open. I got one box. <laughs> and when you close it, we're good to go. <laughs> and I thought that would kind of, I, Emily, if you thought my way, you'd be so much happier, right? Emily's like, yeah, but I'd just be so dull and, like, boring. And, right, marriage, you give up a lot. You can be very misunderstood, and that just continues. But how much do you gain from being married? How much sacrifice do you get to learn to love someone and actually live with them and be with them, right? A sinner who lives right with you, and somehow God commands you to love them and be with them, and you gain far more than you ever give up. Well, how much you give up to have kids, right? Everything, every, your whole life, <laughs> everything. Never have them, never, just kidding. They're the best, right? But you give up, how much do you give up? Uh, your freedom, a lot more money, right? M multiple trips to the hospital possibly if they start trying to eat things that, it's like, how'd you even find that fork? We hid that so well. Found it, you know, it doesn't matter. But how much do you gain by having kids? How much do you grow as a person? How much do you realize how actually about your life, you, your life was about you? Even when you get married, your life is still kind of about you. When you have kids, God's like, your life's now about this person. And if you're really selfish, God gives you twins to show you that your life is really about you, <laughs> right? You are extremely selfish, R.D., right? It's time to break that the hard way. But our girls have blessed us more than we could ever know, right? And they've given us so, so, so much. Well, what do you have to give up to be a Christian? Right, your politics, your money, your cultural history, um, having fun, PG-13 movies, <laughs> right, alcohol, right? When you think of what do I have to give up to be a Christian, right, uh, for many people, they just think, well, I don't actually have to give up that much. It's just about, right, adding Jesus to my life. Maybe I'm gonna keep living my life however I want to live it. 
Because actually in our culture, the church doesn't actually ask that much of people, really. Right? Come to church, be in a group, and then live your life. I don't think Jesus would be extremely happy if that was it. <laughs> right, Jesus is not an addition to your life. Jesus is your life. He, he is your life. And so the short answer to my whole message is simply this. You have to give up everything. And you have to have no other gods except for the God. That is what you have to give up. You have to give up everything. And yet what you find in the end is that even all that you give up, you gain far more. Because God has already given everything, and everything you have is already his. So everything you get, your whole life, all your money, right, he gave it to you. He made your kids. He made your spouse. He made your life. He made your home. He gave everything that's already his. So you actually never possess anything in your whole life. Which can be a helpful reminder for me, you know, when I think, this is mine. I know, but mine. And so we come to a story in Mark chapter 10, if you have your Bibles. Mark chapter 10. Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. Mark chapter 10. The rich young ruler, Mark chapter 10, verse 17 through 31. And I just thought this story has always been one of my favorites. And I think it helps answer the question, what do you have to give up to be a Christian? Because in many ways, this is what the rich young ruler asks. He's asking Jesus, in a sense, what do I have to give up to be a part of what you're doing? What do I have to give up to be a Christian? He wouldn't maybe say he's a Christian, but you get the point, I think. Mark chapter 10, verse 17. As Jesus started on his way, a man ran up to him and fell on his knees before him. Good teacher, he asked, what must I do to inherit eternal life? Okay, so we have, once again, this person on their knees in front of Jesus, because that's where everybody just seems to go, on their knees in front of Jesus. And he says, good teacher, so he has some respect for Jesus. This rabbi, this guru, he's not really thinking of him as God or as a savior, but as a wise teacher that maybe he can gain things from. And from the other gospel accounts, we know that this, this man is young and he's rich. And as Keller notes in his book, he's probably good looking. Because how many rich young people do you know who are not good looking? Okay, he's probably rich, he's good looking, he's young, and he's very empty. And that's why he's coming to see Jesus. And when he says, what must I do to inherit eternal life, you and I probably don't talk like that. But it's kind of Jewish vernacular for how can I be saved? Uh, how can I be a part of the kingdom? How can I get in on what you're kind of dealing out here, Jesus? What was it going to take? And so he's asking Jesus. And Jesus just kind of launches into him from the very beginning. He's pretty strong. He says, why do you call me good? Whoa, Jesus. No one is good except God alone. And so from the very beginning, this man is thinking, here's a good teacher. I'm a good person. People are basically good. And Jesus is like, you're not good, right? There's one who is good. Jesus doesn't say he's not good, but he says God alone is good. And so from the very beginning of their conversation, he's reorienting the man's view on what is good and what is bad. Jesus is like, actually, you're not good. I'm not just a good teacher. I'm much more than that. That's going to help our conversation moving forward <laughs> if we get these things clear. Right? He's, he's not messing around at the beginning. Verse 19, you know the commandments, which the man did. You shall not murder. Okay, pretty basic. You shall not commit adultery. Pretty basic. You shall not steal. You shall not give false testimony. You shall not defraud. Honor your father and your mother. So Jesus runs through the commandments, and he says, here's the deal. Here's how you can inherit eternal life. Keep the commandments. You know the commandments, right? And apparently the man does know the commandments, because in verse 20, this is what he says. He says, teacher, he declared, all these I have kept since I was a boy. Hmm, interesting. You know what? I think actually... 
And I think this is proved right by Jesus in verse 21, looking at him and loving him, that the man really, really believed that he had kept all the commandments. I think what we have here in the rich young ruler is like church kid, super church kid. Okay, this is the kid who is the exact same on Sunday morning as he is on Friday night. This is the kid who doesn't cuss, who memorizes Bible verses, who keeps all of the commands, right? He is a goody two-shoes, but he's not arrogant about it, right? He's not in your face about it. He's just a good kid. He's really good, and he really believes he's kept all the commandments, and he may have. I think Jesus takes him at his word. He doesn't stop and say, you're a liar, because I think he thinks the man believes he's kept all the commandments, and yet, even though he's kept all the commandments, he hasn't murdered, he hasn't stolen, he's honoring his mother and his father. You run through all the commandments, this guy thinks, I've kept them all. He's still empty and searching and looking for answers. Because just keeping the commandments is not enough to fulfill the whole that's in your heart. Just keeping rules is not going to be enough. And this man says, it's not enough for me. I think there's more. There's got to be more. Can you give me another step? Can you give me just something else? Is, is there something I can add to my life? Because I, I've, I've kind of poked around religion. I've poked around these things. I have money, right? I have education. I have good looks. I have all these things, and yet I'm still empty on the inside. So what else do I need to give up? What else do I need in order to get what you're giving out? Just give me a few more things. And Jesus looks at him and loves him, which I... We'll come back to one thing you lack. Okay, the rich young man's like, great. What? Give me that one more thing. Is there an 11th commandment, <laughs> right? Is the secret sauce? Give it to me, right? One thing you lack, he said, go sell everything you have and give to the poor, and you will have treasure in heaven. Then come and follow me. Verse 22, at this the man's face fell. He went away sad because he had great wealth. Jesus uttering the words, the man's face just begins to sink because although he thought he had kept all the commandments, what he had done was actually break the first commandment, which the first commandment is simply this, have no other gods before me. That's Exodus chapter 20. You can turn there if you want. We're going to be there in a second. Exodus chapter 20, verses 1 through 3. The first commandment in all, in all the commandments is you shall have no other gods before me. And so though the young man thinks he's kept all the commandments, what he didn't know is that he'd broken the first commandment because he had a God in his life that wasn't God. It was money. Right? Having money is not a sin. Having money as your God is a sin. But the rich young man, he didn't. It's so subtle. Right? He had money. He was probably using it pretty wisely. It doesn't say he's extorting anyone. It doesn't say he's abusing anyone with it. But he, he was so blind to the fact that he didn't even realize that this money was actually what he looked to for security and for meaning and for purpose. And if, if someone said to him, give away all your money, and that's the way you can follow Jesus, he would pick money over Jesus. And that's what happened. Can you imagine Jesus Christ? This encourages me about people walking away from me when I'm sharing the gospel with them. Jesus, God himself is talking with you and says, this is what it takes. And the man says, no, I love myself, and, and I want to give that up. I give up this, maybe, right? I give up one of my houses, right? But I'm not going to give that up because my heart's too entangled with that thing. I'm not willing to give that up. Well, next is chapter 20, just to refresh us, the Ten Commandments. We'll just hit the first one here, not all ten of them. Exodus chapter 20, verse 3, you shall have no other gods before me. I remember in Sunday school growing up in um, church, I can't remember if it was at a Baptist church or at camp somewhere, and I had no idea what idols were. And like, you know, reading to the people of the Old Testament, and they're talking about idols, and they're talking about gods. And I remember the teacher at one point, she said, um, she said, kids, she said, 
What you don't want to do is go home and, and build a, a godlike figure in your backyard. I remember thinking, okay, I don't think I'm going to do that. Is that all that, I, is that, all that having no other gods mean? Because I think I'm good, right? You know what I mean? Like, I, I don't think I'm going to build a calf. I don't even know how you get parts for that, okay? I'm not sure how you would do that. And so when I grew up, I always would read the Bible and think no other gods uh, is like foreign gods, um, like other religions or um, like things I actually build and worship in my home. Um, and idols are the same type of things, but, but that's not what it means for me anymore. So I'm like, I'm good. And as I begin to actually read the scriptures, what you find out is that the Bible has this beautifully kind of nuanced view of, uh, or, or full view of kind of what gods are. And so a god is simply this. It's anything that you and I look to for what only God can give us. It's anything that you and I look to and say, if I have that, if I can possess that, that gives me meaning, that gives me purpose, that gives me happiness. When I look at that, I say, I'm okay. That is a god. And it can be drugs, Right? Because every time you get high, every time you get filled, you have to do it again to get that feeling. It can be excessive alcohol, right? It can be sexual partners. These are kind of the classic ones. All of these things promise life and deliver death because you have to keep doing them. Once is not enough, right? Well, that's a God because if you say, um, I have to have this sexual relationship, I have to get this high, I have to do that in order for me to feel good about who I am, that's a God. And it owns you and you're a slave to it. Now, when I grew up also, that was kind of the extent of the gods that were preached. But it goes further because it's not just about bad things. It's actually the way in which you and I use good things that we have to repent of. Because your your spouse can be a god. Your relational partner can be a god. If you look to that person and say, how you feel about me justifies who I am, that's a god. Right? If you're high when they're high... And low, when they're low, if they say, if their opinion of you changes how you think about yourself, that person is a God. Because your happiness and your life is built on them validating you. Right? Your kids can be your God. Right? Easily. And you can be justified by parenting. As I've learned in the past 13 months, I thought, I'm better. I will not. Jesus is better. I will not be those parents. Right? And when I go to this place called Little Gym, does anybody go to Little Gym? It's a gym for little people, if that wasn't explanatory in the name. And we had, uh, there, we're in this class with uh, zero, year, not zero-year-olds, uh, less than one-year-olds, less, yeah, less one two-year-olds, and not even, I don't even know, kids who are small. And uh, so our girls are the only ones who can't walk. And uh, so we go in the first day, and I'm thinking, it's going to be great in the winter and get some exercise out. It's a really awesome place. I wish there was like a big gym. We'd just go and have fun in, and there's not. Uh, and so the other kids are walking. And they're doing, you know, the teacher's like, hey, do this drill, do this flip. And our girls are kind of like looking around like, hey, 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 just smiling at everyone. I'm like, no, you got to do the drill, right? And so what my temptation is to be like, just like prop them up and like kind of push them so they start walking and be like, look, look, they're walking. Or like when they're doing the somersault, I just kind of help them the somersault and have some other kid just like push him down so he can't do it. You know, just be like, <laughs> loser, right? This kid can't even... Right? Innately, I'm like, I got to make my kids better because that's going to make me look better as a parent. I can't believe they're walking and they're doing that. What's wrong with you guys? Right? I'm looking like I'm not a good parent. And like, it's so subtle how it happens, right? It's so subtle how you're being comparing yourself to other people based on your kid's performance. That's something like the little gym, right? And yet in that moment, for just a brief second, my, my belief what other people thought about me became a God in my life. Because I thought what they think about me, that, that's going to make me feel good or bad. When I go home, are they thinking, oh, amazing Camille, they're awesome. Instead of just saying, well, God, whatever happens, it's all cool. We're just going to have fun. 
right? Duh, parenting 101. But then you get in the moment and just your heart starts to do crazy things, right? It starts to do crazy things. Tim Keller writes in his book, his commentary on Mark, actually on this passage. He says, Jesus says, if you want to follow me and have eternal life, of course you shouldn't commit adultery. You shouldn't defraud people or murder them. You shouldn't do bad things. But if, if you just repent of doing bad things, all it will do is make you a religious person. If you want eternal life, if you want intimacy with God, if you want to get over that nagging sense that there's still something missing, if you can't find a way to get the stain out, then you have to change how you relate to your gifts and your successes. Note that. You ha- here's what it is. You have to repent of how you've been using your good things. All the good things that God has given you. Your clean house. You're wanting to be in control, right? Your life looking like Pinterest. All of these things can easily become things where we say, if I can just have that, I will feel happy. And I am not willing to give that up. And Jesus knows this. Why doesn't Jesus just say, believe in me? Right? Why does he give the man something to do? It sounds like Jesus is forgetting the gospel. It's not what you do. It's what Jesus does for you. And you're thinking, well, Jesus can't forget the gospel. He created the gospel. So what's happening here, right? When the man says, okay, I've kept all the commandments, why doesn't Jesus say, okay, that was a kind of test question. Just repent and believe in me. Why does he give the man one more thing to do? Here's why. Here's how subtle sin is can be because he said, I I think Jesus would say, I could tell the rich young man, believe in me, and he would say yes. He'd check it off and money would still be his God, right? And so Jesus is making a beeline to the thing he loves the most, exposing it and saying, you've got to choose me over that because you and I can keep all the commandments, right? We can have very moral, respectable lives. We, we can do all of these things. We can keep all the rules. But if we don't have a relationship with the rule maker, it's religious nonsense. It's pointlessness, right? The commandments start with a gospel declaration. This is verse, ch- verse 2 of chapter 20. It sometimes gets left off the Ten Commandments that are posted everywhere. I am the Lord your God who brought you out of Egypt, out of the land of slavery, This begins all the commandments. I am the Lord your God who brought you out of Egypt, out of the land of slavery. That's why you should have no other gods before me. That's why you should give up everything for me because I saved you. I rescued you. You were in slavery. You were good as dead. You were dead and I rescued you and ransomed you. And that's why I am the only one who saved you. Your family can't save you. Your kids can't save you. Your job can never save you. I saved you. I bought you with a price. And so now you should obey me, not to earn my love, but because I already gave you my love. This is the right order. Right? Gospel and then obedience. Right? If we, if we devoid the commandments and the rules of God from the rule maker and from the gospel, then it just, this book just becomes a bunch of rules. And I, I don't want to give up just for rules. But if we see actually all the Ten Commandments flow from God's identity and from our identity as God's people, then we long to love him. Then we long to pursue him. And not that you and I always will. Right? But if we've experienced the fullness of that gospel, we're going to be less likely to pursue other things, right? It's like once you've had fresh seafood off the bayou down in Alabama, whoo, as good as it gets, I declare. Once you've had that, you go to Captain D's, what? (laughs) You're like, no offense, people going to Captain D's. But if you've experienced something else, every time you pass a Captain D's, you're going to be like, no, I've had something better. I don't need that. 
Every once in a while, to be honest, sometimes it's all you got, right? And sometimes we're still going to fall. But we're far less likely to give in to temptation and give in to sin if we've tasted and experienced the real thing, the gospel of Jesus. We're far less likely to say, I want to pursue other gods. I want to pursue pornography, right? I want to pursue other things, drugs. I want to make my wife or my husband my guy. I'm far less likely to do that if I'm fully satisfied by Jesus, if I'm giving up everything for the one who gave up everything for me. And yet even though I know that there's forgiveness when I fall short of that and can't do that because it's not a religion based on performance. Never forget verse 2 of the Ten Commandments or in your life of faith. God has saved you and rescued you and invited you to follow him. And the first commandment is the most important. You shall have no other gods before me. And in fact, Martin Luther, his commentary on the Ten Commandments, he said, you cannot break any of the other commandments without first breaking the first commandment. You can't break any other ones without at some point in your heart saying, I want that more than God. Or I refuse to give that up because my heart's too attached to it. Okay, last part of the passage in Mark chapter 10 says this. Jesus is going to make a kind of a commentary on this because disciples are going to be freaked out. Verse 23, Jesus looked around in 23 of chapter 10. Jesus looked around and said to his disciples, how hard is it for the rich to enter the kingdom of God? The disciples were amazed at his words, but Jesus said again, Children, how hard it is to enter the kingdom of God. It is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for someone who is rich to enter the kingdom of God. The disciples were even more amazed and said to each other, Who then can be saved? So (laughs) this is pretty clear. It's easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for someone who is rich to enter the kingdom of God. This is not just a metaphor. Jesus is speaking, I think, literally here. It it is impossible. It is impossible because the disciples are like, wait, we thought people with money were blessed. That's that's what we thought. We thought people with with wealth and with money, with things put together, we thought that they had it together. So if they're not in, if if they're not saved, then what do we have? We're poor fishermen. We don't have anything in the scales of society. We thought this guy of all guys would be good. And the disciples are freaking out. They're like, wait. What? Who gets in? How do you even get saved, right? They're wanting to know the answer to the first question he asked. How can we be saved? What do we have to give up? I don't understand. Right? And Jesus says in verse 27, in the midst of their frustration, who who then can be saved? Jesus looked at them and said, with man this is impossible, but not with God. All things are possible with God. What things? People who are sinners being saved. Romans chapter 5 says this. It'll be on the screen. Verse 6. You see, at just the right time, when you were still powerless, impossible. Christ died for the ungodly. Very rarely will anyone die for a righteous person, though for a good person someone might possibly dare to die. But God demonstrates his own love for us in this. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. The impossible made possible. How then can you be saved? Paul is saying this this is hell. Like this is the way that you get saved. This is the way you get eternal life. 
Verse 9, since we have now been justified by his blood, how much more shall we be saved from God's wrath through him, through Jesus? For if while we were God's enemies, we were reconciled to him through the death of his son, how much more, having been reconciled, shall we be saved through his life? Not only is this so, but we also boast in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have now received reconciliation. Right? That is as clear of a gospel explanation as you can get right there. Jesus is saying, with man, it's impossible. It's impossible for you to inherit the kingdom of God because all of us are going to break the commandments. All of us are going to fall short of the commandments. And so the question is not simply, what do I have to give up to be a Christian, but what has God given up to allow me to be a Christian? What has God sacrificed to make the impossible possible so that I can serve my life for him? And, and Paul says here, you see, at just the right time when you were still powerless, right? Christ died for you. Verse 8, God demonstrates his own love for us in this. While we were still sinners, Christ died for you. Not when you had your perfect moral day. That's when Christ died for you. Not when you got it all together that one day and didn't yell at your kids, right? And you didn't speed. That was the day. Okay, that's the perfect day. All right, I'm dying for you that day. No, it says when you were sinful, at your worst day, at your darkest day, Jesus says that's the day I'm going to die for you and bring you into the kingdom of God to show you that what is impossible with man is possible with God through the life and the death and the resurrection of Jesus. And so now believing that, knowing that you and I should be able to answer the question, what do I have to give up to be a Christian with this? God, what, what can I Right, what can I give up? Right, what, what can, God, how do you want to use my life? How do you want to use, how do you want to use my things? I, I trust you that whatever I give up for you, you will, you will give back to me. I, I trust you with my future. I trust you with my children. I, I trust you with my actual life. I actually really trust you. And I don't want to just say it or just see it on a coin. I actually trust you with everything that I am. I actually believe in you because you can do the impossible. You already did it. And far be it for me to say to a God who did that, no, I'd rather walk away because my heart's too enamored with this other thing than you. And yet, even if you're in the midst of that sin struggle, even if you're in the midst of that, right, at that moment, Christ died for you to set you free from that by the power of the Spirit. Mark 10, it ends this way. Jesus given this promise. Peter spoke up. Peter always speaking up. We've left everything to follow you. Like, have we done enough? My boy Peter, I love him, <laughs> right? He's us, right? We've left everything, right? It's, have we done enough? Have we done the, please tell us we've done enough because I'm not sure what we're doing still, right? Have we done enough? Verse 29, truly I tell you, Jesus replied, no one who has left home or brothers or sisters or mother or father or children or fields for me and the gospel, there's the reason. That's the why. That's Exodus 22 will fail to receive a hundred times as much in this present age, right now, homes, brothers, sisters, mothers, children, and fields, along with persecution. So there's the other part of the promise, persecution. And in the age to come, eternal life. But many who are first will be last, and the last will be first. Jesus is saying, Peter, Peter's saying, we've given up everything, right? And Jesus is saying, if you've given up everything for me and for the gospel, you will receive even more. In this life, and in the life to come, right? Through what? A beautiful community called the church, hopefully, right? N new family, different family, family different from your own biological family, 
That's what he's saying here. He's saying this is the promise here. When you give up everything for Jesus, you get even more because everything is his. And he's given up everything for you. How can you not give up all things for, for him? When Emily and I first looked at um, the job at Door Creek, um, almost, well, over three, oh, three years ago now, we were looking at it. And I was just looking for jobs and finishing up seminary and thinking, okay, just give me a job. And, you know, I was working part-time in Dallas doing laundry for college kids thinking, I have a master's degree. <laughs> I'm not doing your laundry, you know. And yet God was a nice season of humbling in my heart, and it was good. And I was looking for jobs, and I applied to, God, 5, 10, 15 jobs. And I remember thinking the first time I sent my resume in, though I'd done nothing in my life, I remember thinking, once they see this resume, <laughs> oh, I might get a call. I didn't put my phone number on it, but they ain't going to find a way to call me. And the first email came back. I was sitting at Starbucks in uh, Highland Park. And the, it came back and said, your gifts do not match our needs. And I remember thinking, well, your needs must be very small because. <laughs> and so then I waited 11 more months till I got a job, right? That was once again the Lord humbling, humbling me. And it was a long time. And uh, I heard about uh, Door Creek and just sent in my resume and thought, Madison, I've never been there, whatever. I sent my resume in with uh, one of like 10 that day, and I got a call from Coglin and talked with him and liked him, and I talked with Pastor Mark and, and really, really liked him and thought, uh-oh. I remember we were uh, eating, and I just remember thinking, Wisconsin, it just feels like, what? You know, I was thinking like, like Virginia, like away from Texas, like North Carolina, you know, somewhere not quite. And uh, we came up. And for our, our visit, and all, all my family's in the South, and Emily's family's all in the South. We don't have anybody in the Midwest. And we came up and had a, had a good visit, you know, came in March, and it was actually uh, the week before it was really warm, which everyone still tells me, that, that everyone. Like, you should have been here last week, a year later. If you would have been here this time last, you people in the weather, you love it, you love it. <laughs> and I remember just being like, yeah, okay. And uh, we, had, we had like five days, and I remember we, we got on the plane, and I was 99% sure that it, it, no, wasn't the place. Like, it's just too far. We don't know anybody. I don't, let's just, let's, let's just wait, right? Let's just wait. And so we were, I mean, pretty convinced this is not the place for us. Was pretty sure, almost going to make a call. And um, Colin Mark were like, just give it a few days and then call us. And I was like, oh, okay, I'll give you a few days. And um, then a couple of days later, I remember I woke up and, and I just felt God said, you need to go. You need to go. And Emily felt the same way. And even our parents, who were like, what? <laughs> Had this peace come over them. And so we called Kyle and said, we're coming. I think he was surprised, because I think he knew that it was probably a no. And so we, obviously, we came up. And it's almost been three years now. And I remember, um, like, our first weekend or two here, um, Emily and I went downtown, and we're eating. And we didn't know anybody. And I remember coming to church on Sundays, and I'd come home to Emily, and she'd be kind of emotional because she didn't know anybody. And I'm gone now for a lot part of the weekend, and I'm working during the week, and we don't know anybody. And so we got a puppy, and then we got rid of it two weeks later because we'd like, our hearts are not in good places. Okay, our hearts, yeah. Sorry, babe, I exposed there. And just these type of things. And I was like, I remember thinking, man, I just, uh, I don't know. I don't know. Be easy to go home, Right be easy to go home. And I remember um, we went downtown and we watched the sunset over Lake Mendota and we just prayed um, right by a pier. And we said, God, we, we know that you called us here, right? We know that you've called us to Door Creek Church in Madison, Wisconsin. And there are days right now where I don't, I can't imagine why, but I know you've done it. And, and we've seen this verse come out and play in action, right? And we took a picture. I have a photo of that, 
that day. And uh, that's not us, but uh, we, we, it would have been cool if it was. Um, and I, I have that, and I look at that every once in a while, right, when things get hard. And I think, God, um, you called us here. I don't know how long we'll be here, but yeah, we really do love it here. And you've given us family, right? This has become our family, right? And for all that we've given up, it's not because we're awesome, it's because God is awesome. Right? We're not the poster child saying, oh, Artie and Emily, they're just better than them. No, no. God is awesome. And God is faith. With everything that we've given up, he's given more in return. And anything you could ever give up for him, anywhere you could ever go, anything you could ever do, he will give more to you. Do not have other gods. Do not chase after other things that are less than him and what he can give you because your life will be far more empty. It will be far more empty. Pursue Jesus. Look to Jesus, the true rich young ruler. Right. In 2 Corinthians chapter, chapter 8, verse 9, it says this, For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, though he was rich, one who was the true rich young man, though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor, so that you through his poverty might become rich. If he has done all of this for us, how, how, when we see this question, how can we not say, what, what Lord? I open hands, because I trust you. I'll give up anything for you because I know you're good. And I know you'll give me far more in this life and persecution and hard days. And yet in the life to come, we will reign with you forever. Do not look to yourself. Do not look to the gods that keep calling to you and seducing you and whispering you and saying, come pursue me. Come find happiness in me. Keep looking to the scriptures. Keep looking to Jesus and saying, Jesus, for your sake. For your sake. C.S. Lewis puts it this way. He says, give up yourself and you'll find your real self. Lose your life and you'll save it. Submit to death, death of your ambitions and favorite wishes every day and death of your whole body in the end. Submit with every fiber of your being and you will find eternal life. Keep back nothing. Nothing you have not given away will be really yours. Nothing in you that has not died will ever be raised from the dead. Look for yourself and you'll find in the long run only hatred, loneliness, despair, rage, ruin, and decay. But look for Christ, and you'll find him. And with him, everything else thrown in. Amen. Let's pray. Our Father, our Father, it is so easy to look to ourselves and to look to things, to comforts and the things and make them our gods, and not even realize we've done it. Father, I pray you would just diagnose us and say, what are we looking to? Whether it's kind of traditional bad things or how are we using good things in our life, that at the end of the day, when we lay down at night, we're saying, this is what makes me happy. Father, I pray that would be you. For those in our North Campus, for those in the Foundry, for those in the chapel service right now, would you just minister to our hearts, God? That we would not be like the rich young man who walked away sad because we loved our things or someone else more than you. And that Jesus will never say to us, you lack one thing. Because through you, we've been given all things. <laughs> Father, we thank you for your son, the true rich young ruler who gave away all his wealth. So that in his poverty, we might become rich. And give away all that we have for him. In the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. And all God's people said. Amen. Amen.